Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This is now part three of our series on original sin. In part one, Keegan Chandler discussed the history of Augustine's doctrine of original sin, arguing that the whole idea is post-biblical. Last time, Jerry Weirwolf responded to Chandler, explaining that we do actually have solid biblical grounding to believe in some form of inherited original sin based on Romans 5, 12 through 21. Today, we put these two scholars in dialogue with each other. In today's episode, we begin by defining how Chandler and Weirwolf both understand original sin. Then Chandler lays out his case for a positive view of children in the Bible using a number of texts. Next, we consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, a major text for believing all humans are fallen and sinful as a, de- as a default. And each of them discusses their take on that. Although we'll have to wait until next week to get into Romans 5, which is really the juicy center of this whole discussion. This debate, or really discussion, will hopefully elucidate two important views on original sin so that you can think through your own position. Here now is episode 323, Original Sin Debate, Part 1, with Keegan Chandler and Jerry Weirwill. Welcome today, Jerry Weirwill and Keegan Chandler to Restitutio. I'm so glad to have you guys both here for this discussion. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Looking forward to it. All right, so we have looked at the subject of original sin a couple weeks ago and heard Keegan's presentation and then Jerry's response to that presentation. And now this week, we thought it would be good to have some respectful dialogue and see if see if we can't iron out these issues and figure out what what is the, the truth of the matter on these different subjects. But before we get into the specific topics, I thought each of you could just summarize what it is you believe about original sin. So Keegan, why don't we have you go first and you just you know, in a sentence or a paragraph or whatever. Just go ahead and summarize for us what you believe about the topic of original sin. So when we speak about the doctrine of original sin, it's important that we uh, define very carefully the kind of claims that we're actually making. Many people uh, would say they affirm a doctrine of original sin, but they might mean very different things by it. When I speak of the doctrine of original sin, I'm primarily referring to that doctrine held by um, Augustine uh, in which human beings have each inherited Adam's sin in the sense that they have inherited on the one hand, both his real guilt for his wrongdoing in the garden of Eden and also a corrupted nature, which compels them to sin throughout their lives. There's, you know, several more attendant claims that usually go along with that. But those are really the core claims of the historical doctrine of original sin. Um, And I would uh, reject uh, both of those claims that human beings inherit Adam's guilt and that they inherit a sinful nature, which compels them to sin. I think when we compare that doctrine to the New Testament, it may seem on the on the surface to resolve a couple of interesting texts, but it actually creates far more problems than it solves. 
And I hope that today as we go through this, we'll have a chance to interact on some of the, what I think are serious philosophical, ethical, and scriptural problems with this understanding. Thank you so much for that definition, Keegan. That was really helpful. So if I could just repeat it back, make sure I got it. One is the idea that we inherit the guilt of Adam. All humans, whether you've done anything right or wrong, inherit that guilt and stand, in a sense, guilty before God by default, even before having done anything. And two, that humans inherit a compulsion towards sin that we might call the flesh or sinful nature. Is that a fair summary of what you just said there? Yes, that's right. All right, so at least now we know what we're talking about in very clear terms. Uh, it's really helpful. Uh, Jerry, what is your position on these two? Would you agree with them, or would you change the definition at all? Uh, I would agree with both, except with the one clarification that uh, from Augustine's doctrine of original sin, the idea that I think Keegan is putting forth about the being compelled to sin uh, is that of a total depravity where people can do nothing but sin uh, in the sense that they are completely corrupted through and through and have n- no ability to do good at all. So that's kind of that's the way Augustine nuanced uh, the idea that the original sin compels people to sin. And I would uh, I would say I disagree with that. Um, I think your terminology of that there's a compulsion. Um, I could say that there's some sort of an affinity. We have this inner sort of uh, in our flesh, this power that uh, gives us inclinations towards sin. So that would be my clarification on the second point. All right, very good. So let's get into it. As far as our, our starting point, we are talking about children. So let's get into what is the status of children in the Bible? Uh, Keegan, where do you want to start with this? Yeah, thanks so much. And Jerry, thank you for your comments, uh, too, about your own views. I think it'll be interesting in this discussion as we move forward to see how closely I think what you've described actually does overlap with Augustine. And then on the other hand, um, how closely you and I actually will overlap on some of these points. So I think this is going to be great. And first of all, I want to say that I really appreciate um, your responses in the last episode, Jerry. Uh, You are a Paul scholar, and I respect your opinion very much. And so I'm hoping to uh, learn some things today. And uh, as this area is your specialty, I think we'll have a lot of fun with this. And uh, to start off, I'd like to first respond uh, for your request to some of the biblical issues that you raised. And uh, we're going to start here with the status of children. And I'm going to save Romans 5.12 for last, just for fun. In, in the last episode, you said that certain biblical passages like Ephesians 2, uh, which I'll address directly after this, uh, suggest that babies are born sinners, that they're evil from the moment they're born, that they're not in a right relationship with God. Of course, as Sean pointed out, it logically follows that these babies, if they were to die before repenting and accepting Christ, would go to destruction because uh, in terms of Christian theology, that's what happens to humans who exist in that way. And I know Sean asked you that question, Jerry, but your answer was to argue that the Bible doesn't give an answer about children. So against this, I would suggest that the Bible actually does have something to say about children. I think the Bible in general, and Paul and Romans in particular, very clearly implies an age of accountability doctrine for children. And therefore, it explains very much about their status with God. First, we need to pay attention to the Old Testament passages, which were informative of Paul's view, of course. Uh, and which refer to a time before children know good or evil. In Deuteronomy, we read about 
your little ones who have no knowledge of good or evil. And in Isaiah, the prophet speaks about a time in the life of a young boy uh, before he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. So there appears to be in the Israelite conception a period of time in the life of a child in which he is not held accountable for sin. And in Ezekiel 28, 15, we may locate another passage like this about a human king of the Gentiles, the king of Tyre. God says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And if that's about a human king, uh, which it is, then that's a pretty significant verse. And in Isaiah, we also have this famous passage. It says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So all of this implies that we were once on the right path to begin with until we strayed from the path. Sinfulness is our own uh, deviation in the Old Testament. And there were also many New Testament passages, which are very helpful here. Jesus actually teaches us explicitly what God thinks about children. Uh, very far from the Bible having nothing to say about their status or their relationship with God, and far from the Bible teaching that children are in a bad relationship with, your, with God, as you put it, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus teaches this. He says, unless you are converted and become as little children are, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, rather than some kind of sinful reprobates, children are portrayed as model citizens of the kingdom. And also in Mark, Jesus says, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these are. And this is all doubtless because as Paul assumes in his letter to the Romans, children have not yet done any good or evil. That's Romans 9. They've not done good or evil in God's eyes because they cannot comprehend the law of God. And where there is no law, says Paul in Romans 4, there is no violation. And apart from the law, sin is dead. So if we synthesize Jesus and Paul, children are counted innocent by the Father, and their present innocence is worthy of our emulation. If, if we're to enter the kingdom of God, we must be converted, Jesus says, to some blessed state that little children are now in. And of course, all of this biblical data is why the earliest Greek fathers, like Barnabas, for example, said that when we have the remission of sins as Christians, it's like we're receiving the soul of children as if God were creating us anew. So all of this makes me say that, no, the Bible does have something to say about children, and it's not that they're counted sinners and enemies with God, but that they're counted blessed. Ethically speaking, also, I think we should stand up for God and defend his sense of justice and say that he would absolutely not condemn a baby to hell. That's not the God that I see in the scriptures at all. Okay. And I think we can be a lot firmer on this in light of uh, both scripture and reason. Uh, thanks so much for that, Keegan. Uh, very good. So here's the question to you, Jerry. Uh, do you think babies are going to hell? I guess we already talked about this, but it seems like we really have a couple of different options here. One is the classical doctrine of Augustine who taught that, yeah, babies do go to hell, and that's why you got to baptize infants and clear away their sins. Or the other position that a lot of non-Reformed Christians hold to is the idea that babies and, and children before the age of accountability are sort of like under their parents' protection, in a sense, until uh, they reach the age of making decisions on their own. Uh, Jerry, do you take one of those two or a different view of this subject? 
well, first of all, Keegan, um, I really appreciate you articulating your view of uh, how children uh, are described. And it, it would be a whole episode probably to re- try to respond to each one of, uh, of those verses that you referenced. But I think just to, for the sake of trying to clarify here, uh, the answer is that, uh, yeah, I, I do think that there is some way that God is right in the way that he judges. How shall the judge of the earth uh, do, uh, not do what is right? You know, so I think that the idea of what happens to children before they are able to have their own personal faith in Christ, uh, I do think is not a directly addressed subject in scripture. That's the first point to make. Second point is that I, I do, I have held on to the idea from scripture that there is some aspect of a parent's uh, faith that is related to the rest of the, of the household and family in the way that it can provide some sort of understanding. Now we're talking about, you know, first Corinthians chapter seven, where children are, are described as being sanctified uh, by the parents. Uh, if one takes that to be a uh, salvific sanctification, um, that is a common interpretation of that passage. And I've, I've had that uh, position for a long time on that the children, uh, the faith of the parents is somehow connected to a child until they're able to make their uh, own decision on whether or not to accept or reject Christ. But I've uh, loosened a little bit more on not seeing that as being a, a very strong, that's not directly, I think, what Paul is describing there. So uh, do I think that children who are uh, offspring of unbelievers are saved until the point at which they become unbelievers? So it's like, are they in a neutral point, you know, born in a state of holiness? Uh, no, I don't think the Bible describes that the children are in a correct relationship with God uh, from birth, and especially even unborn children. You know, if you want to take the Romans uh, 9 record, you know, I, I don't think that has anything to do with being born holy. Uh, Jacob or Esau, and, and talking about God's uh, divine uh, decision to choose one over the other, uh, basically just pointing out that they don't actually have any reason for uh, a, a merit for which God has chosen uh, one versus the other. So I think that kind of is uh, off the point there. The troubling aspect about what to do about uh, unborn children or infants I'm going to take the position that I don't think the Bible uh, gives a 100% clear answer on exactly how God is going to exercise justice and uh, just make those decisions. So, but you would deny that children need to have infant baptism in order to have original sin washed away, right? Yeah, yeah, I do not affirm pedo-baptism. Okay. So, um, so you're leaving it as an open question. You don't, you don't really know what happens to babies or children, or we might put other people with mental disabilities that never reach a, uh, the ability to have accountability. You would say you just don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, that's not satisfying, but it's honest. (laughs) Uh, Keegan, where, where do we want to go from here? Should we talk about Ephesians? Well, no, let I'm, me let me say one I'm, thing real quick is on the position of uh, age of accountability, what that then would then say is every single unborn child is saved. Right. Like that, like, like guaranteed, no question. You can like that's that's just a hands down. Right. What Keegan is saying is that by default, you are innocent 
until proven guilty, I guess. Uh, so anyone who died before sinning obviously cannot pay the penalty for sin and will not face judgment. Am I getting that right, Keegan? Right. And I'd like to respond to a couple of these things. Yeah, please do. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And um, I think that the New Testament does explicitly talk about this very issue. What would happen to children or, as you said, um, Sean, to the severely mentally handicapped? Well, that's laid out explicitly when Paul teaches that before the law came into his life, sin was dead. And where there is no law, there is no sin. That is, he says, sin is not put to the ledger. Therefore, they are held innocent. I, I think that's very clear. And I think that's why you see that in the teaching of Jesus also, that we are to emulate um, little children. And I think you um, hit the nail on the head, Sean, when you started talking about the mentally handicapped. So I have a question for you, Jerry, on this. Do you think that a severely mentally handicapped person who is not fully in charge of his own faculties and who commits crimes, even very bad, very heinous crimes, do you think it would be just to uh, for the state to execute him? I think that the thing about what we're trying to discuss here is does the Bible teach original sin? And I'd have to say, I think we're straying quite far away from it because let's let's take, for example, what you just said, the idea that there's no sin if there is no law. I mean, you, you, uh, you quote there, I think, from uh, Romans 4, and uh, I think that goes blatantly in contradiction to other passages, even in the writings of Paul himself within the same book. The idea that he comes back in Romans 5 and then basically says that, indeed, sin was in the world before the law. So I'm wondering how you're trying to interpret that as being like sin is not actually in existence if the law isn't there. No. Could you explain that? Sure. Well, I didn't. First of all, we're, we're concerned with God's justice and God's justice as presented in the Bible, which is where we learn that from. And I believe that our own sense of justice is actually impressed upon us by God. So I think it's more relevant to these to these issues and interp- and uh, the issue of interpreting the Bible. Because I think the Bible does make sense and it it presents a just God. But I don't think that sin never uh, did not exist before the law. But Paul says that his sins were dead before the law came to him. And therefore, the sin was not put to the ledger. So people could have been doing all kinds of technically sinful things. You know, a little kid could yell at his mother or a severely mentally handicapped person could steal a candy bar from the store, but that sin is not put to his account. It's not held against him, and therefore sin is dead. Does that make sense? So you're interpreting that to mean that without the law, sin doesn't bear a penalty. Correct. I think that's explicitly what he says. Where there is no law, sin is not put to account. Well, this is great because I think this segues into this this idea of what exactly is sin, because that that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about sin, and particularly, does one person's sin, like Adam, does that actually have any other ramifications and effects? And how then does that does each person in their own life and in their own way that they personally sin, is there a disjunction between those two? So, with your description here of like with uh, there being no penalty for sin, 
what do you understand from the scriptures that the penalty of sin is? Well, the penalty for sin in general is death. And obviously, because of Adam's sin, we have suffered the generational consequences of his sin. One of those is being cut off from the tree of life. But I and, and, and I'd love to get into more of those uh, topics when we talk about Romans 512. I think that'll be the perfect time to do that. If we can, I would like to move into Ephesians 2 yes. and get on the topic of children and their status. Yeah, let me let me just preface that ever so quickly here, Keegan. Uh, Ephesians 2 is really the go-to text next for us because it reads, Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is really a go-to text to establish that the default nature of humanity, because of the word all there, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, and then going on, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's Ephesians 2, 3. How do you interpret that, Keegan? And how can you affirm the sort of neutral or innocent status of of children in light of this? Sure, and I'll try to make this as succinct as I can, but there are a lot of things being canvassed here. In this verse, some people have said that this means that we have a sinful nature, that the nature that is in view in this text is something we we're born with, which has compelled us to our sinful actions and is left of in this, us in this state that is uh, worthy of God's wrath. Uh, but I, I suggest we're reading an, an Augustinian anthropology into this passage. This doesn't actually say anything explicitly about being born. So that's the first important thing to note. But second of all, we should think about this. There are all kinds of children in the Bible, children of wrath, children of the devil, children of God. And in the context of the New Testament, we know that we become children of the devil or children of God by our practices through the lives that we actually live and not necessarily the lives that we're born with uh, because of something not in our control. Just like we're made children of God by our good actions, I argue that we're made children of wrath in the same way. Paul's emphasis in this very passage is on people's individual actions and even more specifically on their actions as adults before they were Christians. Paul is not speaking about God's judgment coming upon people before they grew up and committed these actions. Just like he says in Romans chapter 1, uh, after speaking of all these sinful actions, he says those who practice such things are worthy of death. And right there in Ephesians 2, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Are these the inherited sins and it's just an inherited guilt that they had as babies? Uh, no, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world and the way of the devil and the sons of disobedience. This is talk about a sinful lifestyle, a sinful practice. This is sin as a way of life and not uh, a status inherited by birth. He's clearly not talking about babies. I think you are incapable of practicing and walking in a lifestyle of sin. I mean, they're babies. It's best to see this phrase, children of wrath, as Marcus Bart explains in his commentary on Ephesians, as a Semitic idiom for condemned and cursed men and not a reference to babies. And I think we should be careful not to interpret this in such a way that it conflicts with Paul's other writings. Remember, he says in Romans that where there is no law, that is where there is no consciousness of the law, there is no sin or it's not put to the ledger. 
It was only when the law came into his life later that his sins became alive, he says, and he died. That is, he became someone worthy of death. Uh, because again, in Ephesians, it's those who practice these sins who are worthy of destruction and not those who have simply inherited something from their parents. And, uh, and speaking, of course, of the important word uh, nature, what about this phrase by nature? Doesn't it just say that we are children of wrath by nature? And doesn't this mean that we necessarily exist in such a way that's worthy of God's punishment? Well, uh, no, it doesn't have to mean that. In the Bible, nature certainly can be used that way and is most of the time to describe an inherited state which you can't change. But in other examples of Greek literature, we see that it can sometimes refer to a habit which has become something like an inherited nature. There are examples of this word being used to refer to uh, human characteristics uh, that are gained through, through habit or by practice. Uh, in, uh, for example, in Aristotelian ethics, uh, which I think would have been influential in the Greek world that the writer is uh, interfacing with here. Uh, they work in precisely this way. Uh, Aristotle says that a, a habit is like a nature, uh, something you, that you do a lot, it, it eventually assumes the role of nature. I think it's possible that something like that is meant here in Ephesians 2, 3. And since the entire context of this verse is about actions which individuals committed, which they have committed so consciously and so viciously as to warrant God's wrath and death, this makes sense to me. As a, a Methodist theologian named John Miley, he, he once said that uh, it's far more consistent with the whole passage to give this word nature here the sense of a second nature or a habit of life. I'm reminded here of a quote from Pascal, who says that habit is a second nature that destroys the first. And I think that's what's happened to all of us. We were born um, on the right side of the fence, we're in a good standing with God. Again, as Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray, which implies we were originally on the right path to begin with. And it was through our own sinful habits that we became so accustomed to sin and our physical body so expectant of it that it became our nature, our way of existing. And I'll make this final point about this verse. Ephesians 2 says that we Christians were by nature children of wrath. It says that we all formerly lived like this. This was our mode of existence prior to taking on the life of Christ. So this is all about a way of living that we used to carry out, but we no longer do. So if the argument that nature here refers to the nature of original sin, this sin nature that, that uh, has been described here, something that's intrinsic to us that we can't change, well, that just doesn't work because it's evidently abandoned through Christian conversion. Now, Jerry, in the last episode, you had said that we will never get rid of our sinful nature until Jesus comes back. But Ephesians 2 seems clear to me that whatever this nature is that he's speaking about, however it was acquired, it's a former mode of existence that's been left behind. So uh, I think that's contradictory to um, your position about us not being able to get rid of our sin nature. And I ultimately don't think this passage contains a doctrine of original sin. And even if it might at least be compatible with some kind of doctrine like that, it simply does not necessitate one in my view. Very good. Uh, Jerry, what do you think? Well, there's a lot of things that I have to agree with you on, uh, Keegan, and um, I gladly do so. Uh, I think your analysis of the passage dealing with uh, behavioral actions and things like that is completely on point. I think what he's talking about here is the, the former way of life. Uh, when they were without God, they were uh, godless heathens, uh, worshiping pagan gods and uh, filled with all types of lusts and, and evil desires. So I, I do think that that's what is in 
Paul's uh, scope here. Now, I think when we come to this word phusis, uh, the word for nature, the Greek word for nature there, I do think it has a wide semantic range. Um, and I mean, drawing upon some other Greek uh, extra biblical literature on the way it can be used. I, I mean, that's great. You supplemented some other understanding from the semantic range that can be offered. Uh, but I think we need to restrict ourselves to the scope of context as we find it here in the passage of Ephesians chapter two. Uh, but I do not think it's as conclusive as perhaps if you thought I was trying to make it, because I think that where we interpret here being by nature children of wrath comes uh, to us from having a, um, a context from not just the immediate uh, vicinity here in chapter two of Ephesians, but from a, a grander uh, more remote context from other writings of Paul. Uh, I think the first thing you did correctly was identify the phrase children of wrath, that genitive phrase there with the orge, it can, of orges, it can mean and so, like children or people who are destined to God's wrath or who are going to, you know, they're, they're in relation to wrath. And children here, I do not think it's referring to biological age of, of a person. So I think you and I both completely agree on that. Uh, the uh, meaning of by nature, I think that's where we differ, where I'm, I look at this, and even though the context Paul is talking about the sins and the transgressions and the former lives of ungodliness that people are living before they come to Christ, uh, I think he's saying that there is an aspect of being in that way of life at that time that they were there was a, an aspect of their nature that destined them to be under God's wrath. And so to be a, chill, a child of God's wrath by nature uh, is that they're in that lifestyle, not caused by the lifestyle, but a natural part of being outside of Christ in, that, in their lives. They were destined to be under God's wrath. And so that I'm, I'm bringing the, uh, a remoter context and the more immediate context here to bear on the way I'm interpreting that. But I'm also going to grant you that it is not a, the single only way that you could take this passage. I'm interpreting it this way based on some other factors. And once we get to Romans 5, those would become much more clear. Sure. And I appreciate that, Jerry. I think uh, I would actually agree with you that there's something about the nature of these people in view. There's something about their way of presently existing, out, um, which is, of course, outside of Christ, that has destined them for destruction. I, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I think but what we're really, both saying is that the difference is, did it start at some point in their life, or were they, did they, were they always in this category? Right. right. The basic issue is, how do you get to a place where you exist as a child of God's wrath? Are you born that way? Or is that because of your individual actions? And before we move on, um, I'd like to take a look at Paul's other writings on this on this exact issue, because I think you're right. We do need, because this is a little uh, difficult, we do need to consult Paul in other places. So in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 5, he, it, this explains exactly how you become a child of God's wrath. Uh, in verse 5, it says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. So not because of your inherited sin guilt. No, it's because you keep sinning. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. 
So not according to what they've inherited or according to what Adam did. It says those who persist in doing good, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. So that's how you become a child of wrath. You reject the truth and you keep being a sinner. Uh, Verse 13, for it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then in verse 21, he calls out Christians who are, on the one hand, telling people to stop sinning, but then they themselves uh, keep sinning. We don't need to go into all that. But my point is, if you want to exist as a children of wrath, says Paul, then find the truth, know what good you should do, and then reject it by continuing to sin. Uh, Apart from being informative for how we should read Ephesians chapter 2, I think this is actually a warning for all Christians who would say, well, I know what I should do as a Christian. I know I should obey, but I just can't help myself. I'm going to tell others to obey God every day, but I'm not going to stop sinning. In fact, I'm going to keep sinning right up until Jesus comes back and only he can stop me. (laughs) To me, that's how you become a child of wrath as described by Paul and not simply uh, by being born. So uh, that's uh, another way I think we should approach this text in Ephesians 2. I want to ask another question on Ephesians 2, just because it is uh, such a textus classicus for this whole subject. And I I suspect your answer, Keegan, is going to be something related to our mortality. Uh, But why is it the case that everyone previously lived according to their fleshly desires, that everyone's inclinations is by nature of the flesh and everyone carries out the inclinations of their flesh. We're by nature, children of the wrath. We live according to the ruler of the power of the air. You know, why, why is this so pervasive in the human? It, it sounds like he's talking about the human condition here of these people before they came to Christ. And, you know, if things indeed are neutral, we would expect that there, all these big inclusive statements wouldn't be there. Uh, We would expect that, oh, well, some of you are worse than others, and some of you were doing pretty well, and then others, man, you really really struggled. And uh, But we don't see anything like that. It's just these huge blanket statements about everyone's uh, lifestyle of fallenness, if I could put it that way. As far as what you would argue, Keegan, if I understand you correctly, that's a result of mortality, the human condition of mortality, whereas Jerry's saying, no, that's the result of our fallen nature, that we have a, a tendency towards, and Jerry would say, not a compulsion, but a, a, a sort of desire for it, and th- that it is resistible, but it is, it, it is still very powerful nonetheless. Yeah. So, Keegan, maybe you can explain this, this theory that you have, your understanding here about mortality inspiring sin in, in such a, a broad way here. Yeah, and I absolutely, um, and I think that's a fair summary of our general approaches to this, and I absolutely want to, um, I'm going to get into this when we talk about Romans uh, 5.12. Uh, if possible, I'd like to make one final point about Ephesians. I think what we have to be careful when we're looking at Ephesians 2 and how we interpret that, that we don't pit Paul and Jesus against each other, because that's what I see is happening with an approach that identifies nature here in Ephesians 2 as a sinful, guilty, condemned state of existence we had as children. Uh, Because Jesus says that to convert is to return to the state 
that you had as a child, right? If you would convert, you must become as little children are. But uh, in Paul and Ephesians 2, according to this reading, to convert would be to abandon your wrathful state that you had as a child. So I think we shouldn't pit Paul and Jesus against each other, and I, and I don't think that that's necessary. Uh, Jerry, what did you want to respond to what he just said there about pitting oh, Paul sorry. and Jesus against each other? Is, is there something you want, want to say about that, or would you like to move on to Romans 5? No, I, I'd like to—I was waiting for a moment to pause. Uh, I almost was going to jump in when you did. Yeah, I'd like to just say something about the way that Jesus is talking about becoming like a child. I think that this is about having faith, and I, I, I don't see that Jesus saying uh, you need to revert to your prior state of, of innocence before you sinned. Uh, I don't see. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I, I, actually, I don't even see that in what Jesus is saying. So if if I'm missing that, Keegan, you can point that out to me. But I do not see Jesus saying that in what he says. I think that's a uh, an extrapolation, maybe an inference or a, a presupposition uh, of of how you could take what a child means in his eyes. But I think he's saying here that unless you have faith like a child, if you're if you're in the eyes of a child and having that trust in God, then you will you will not be uh, in the kingdom of heaven. Um, and he says here, actually, the child, the hum, the humility of a child and the way that the, the child sort of has that just complete dependence upon uh, their parents and things like that, that this child, even though they're, they're in the lowliest position, not only just societally in the Greco-Roman empire, um, but in the family structure as well, that they will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so then whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me, he says, I think it's uh, Matthew 18. So, yeah, I guess, Keegan, I, I disagree on, on your interpretation of, of what Jesus is saying. Sure, and I um, appreciate that. I think the important thing to think about is the fact that every time that Jesus teaches us about the status of, of children, it's in a very positive light. And, this, and he describes what seems to me to be a good relationship and good standing with God. That there is something fundamentally wrong with children. If they really were enemies of God, they're not in a right relationship with God. They're destined for wrath and destruction. By nature, they only do evil all the time, all of these things. Then I don't see that Jesus could describe conversion uh, as uh, in the terms that he does as uh, becoming like these little children presently are. But we can, we can move on to uh, the next topic. Well, I don't think Jesus views children in that way either. Um, I think uh, so like the idea that children are are just like these terrible, wicked little human beings running around constantly un, un, unable to do nothing but but sin. I, I don't I don't think that's in the but, scripture there at all. But that's precisely the kind of view that I see your your argument for. And correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, when you um, say so, that babies are born sinners, that they're born not in a right relationship with God that they're uh, compelled to sin by nature and are destined for wrath. I, su I suggest that this reflects the theological heritage of Augustine, wherein babies are enemies of God and not a reflection of what the Bible has to say uh, about children, and actually that it has very little ethical or philosophical value. I, I humbly suggest that 
it's only in the realm of theology that we could ever say the kinds of things about babies that we've been entertaining here, <laughs> about babies being in a wrong relationship with God. I mean, think about our relationship, Jerry. If, uh, if our relationship is bad, it's because one party has wronged another, right? But, but what has a baby ever done to God? How is a baby so offensive to Almighty God that he must destroy him in hell? I suggest that, uh, you know, only in the world of theology can people agree with something like that. If, if this God were like any other person, we would think him a, a terrible judge, and we wouldn't say that he was the ultimate good in the universe, uh, certainly. And I think the average person intuitively knows that uh, such a God that would uh, work in that way is no God at all. And I'm so glad to hear that you don't think that that Jesus or um, I, I suppose the other writers of the Bible think this way about children, that they are just sinful reprobates on the, and, and enemies of God destined for wrath. But I think at the end of the day, your, your position is going to, going to frame them like that, all the theological language aside. But you can correct me if you think I'm wrong about that. Well, I'm definitely not afraid to say that God has standards. And, you know, to take your line of reasoning is, I don't like the way God talks about human sexuality. Is God a moral monster to say that, you know, he's depriving people of, of being able to be in intimate relationships with, with same-sex individuals? You know, I, I, only in the realm of theology would we stand a chance to, to make that claim. All right. We want to move on to the next point. Well, let me just ask uh, Jerry one clarifier before we go on. Keegan, you asked the question, what has a baby ever done to God to deserve hell? As Jerry's already mentioned, he's not, he's not at all arguing for the Augustinian view that all babies are definitely going to hell, or the Reformed view that is even much broader than that. Not only that all babies, all children, all adults are going to hell, apart from those that are picked uh, ahead of time. Uh, but I, I wonder, Jerry... How do you conceive of this? Because I think what we're seeing with Keegan's approach here is, uh, I don't want to accuse you of this, Keegan, but like you're singling out this one age category, uh, a baby. And I think what we see in Romans, which we're going to uh, hopefully get to shortly here, is that Paul looks at the whole human race, humanity in general, as fallen. So, Jerry, did you want to clarify that at all, or or should we move on to the next topic Well, here? Um, I think really uh, what I want to do with this is I, I want to, to look at the scriptures, and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, I guess you could say, rhetoric we could come up with on, on trying to paint God as, as some sort of a bad guy if we don't like the way that he has set up and runs the universe. Uh, and the rules that he has established and the way he's described the condition of his creation. Uh, I, I, I think we, if we stay, if we go more toward the scripture and be like, uh, does the Bible say this or that, I think we'll be safer. And I think we should go to Romans 5 because that's really where we're going to find the answer, I believe, because I, I see that as the prima facie text for this whole situation. I mean, my three ideas that the Bible um, on a broad theological scope there's three ideas. One, the Bible presents uh, the universal presence and effect of sin. The second one, the Bible displays the and advocates for the universal need of salvation. And thirdly, the Bible speaks in corporate or categorical categories when it comes to 
the effects of archetypes and typology. So I think in order to let's go to Romans five, because that's where we're really going. That's really the battleground. All right. Well, before we do that, let's uh, Keegan, would you like to clarify anything? Yeah, I would say that the reason why I have been focusing on this issue of children and their and their status with God and what's going to happen to them is um, because this is one half of the position that uh, Jerry that you're defending and one half of the traditional Augustinian doctrine of original sin, which says that we inherit Adam's guilt and that we are born guilty of sin from birth. And when you described and clarified your own view, you didn't disagree with that portion, but instead qualified your uh, belief in man's depravity, saying that he still had free will despite having the sin nature. So, you know, my my focus uh, on the status of children and what's, what God's going to do to them is not trivial to uh, to this or a side issue. It's 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 directly in view. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, we're we're all out of time for today. So we'll we'll have to get into this exciting chapter of Romans five, especially the second half, starting in verse twelve. When we when we come back, uh, for now, thank you guys both for your amicable spirit. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Sean. It was lots of fun, and I'm looking forward to the next episode. Yep, appreciate it. All right, so next week we'll pick it up where we left off here. Just wanted to let you know that I've got links to the previous episodes in this series in the show notes, as well as a number of other podcasts I've done with with each of our speakers, Keegan Chandler and Jerry Weirwell. Also, I wanted to read out some feedback that we got in. We got a number of people who discussed the last episode uh, where I interviewed Jerry Weirwell on his take of Romans 5. Igor Cocelli writes, Interesting discussion, thanks. I believe that the views of Keegan and Jerry are actually complementary. Well, Igor, you just might have to put a pin in that and wait and see how this discussion pans out next time as well, but uh, it seems to me that these two are not compatible at all. They do have overlap, for sure, uh, but I think they're saying two very different things. Anyhow, Igor continues, a friend of mine gave a following explanation of what happened to humans. Imagine a married couple that were criminals and got arrested, condemned, and deported to Siberia. Eventually, they have children. Their children are born in captivity and are viewed as sinners even though they had not committed the sin themselves. However, since they live under unwholesome circumstances, they would be more inclined to misbehavior. I find this example fitting for our discussion. The terms used by Paul are basically legal terms, condemnation, reconciliation, justification, righteousness. Paul does not speak about biological terms in this context. All humans are sinners because they are under condemnation, i.e. Siberia. In order to be released, they need to be declared righteous, and this is where Jesus legally provides the way out. Well, Igor, this is certainly a fascinating analogy to work with. Uh, I guess I would challenge you to give me an account of how Paul uses the term flesh, which seems to make a somewhat biological connection, either a biological connection or a biological metaphor for this tendency that we have within us that results in a, a bent human nature, to use uh, C.S. Lewis's term for it. 
where we actually do crave sin a lot of times, uh, depending on where we are in our journey of sanctification and whether or not we have already come to Christ, um, that craving can be diminished, certainly, but uh, it seems like it's always there, at least just speaking for myself. <laughs> Jason Benedict writes in quite, quite a lengthy comment. I'll have to just mention a couple of excerpts here. He says, we have to be careful we aren't making a case for or against man's ability to be righteous apart from communion with God which happens when we myopically look at this doctrine or that without looking at the comprehensive whole of the Word of God in the Spirit. God gives the how and the why, and they are inseparable. So the ability to to obey God and do what is good was slash is disrupted by the knowledge of good and evil, which promises autonomy, separation from God, which is Satan's promise, not Yahweh God's. But don't think God didn't know it was coming. Uh, let me just pause this here. I think this is actually a really good point. Uh, to think that we can be righteous apart from God is really the whole question of babies and young children, that they are righteous in the sense that they haven't sinned, or I mean, they're not capable of making any moral decisions yet. Uh, but in another sense, they are not righteous in the way that Christians are righteous, I, I guess is uh, Jason's point here, because they don't even believe in anything yet. So maybe we want to identify them as morally neutral, but uh, I could just speak for my own children. They don't stay neutral for long. Uh, I'm tipping my hand a little bit here, but uh, Jason goes on. He says, rather than get hung up on the idiosyncrasies of a doctrine that says, you can't do what God says you're supposed to do. Rather, let's talk about what Paul means by Romans 8 when he says, the carnal mind is at enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Listen, this is not a discussion about the death of the body. This is about the difference between the delusion of autonomy, which is an offense to God, and perfect communion and love that was also in Messiah Yeshua, who being in the form of God, took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. Paul is pointing out, a faith-slash-merit-slash-reciprocity model here that no Catholic or Calvinist or Protestant can rightly divide. Um, so some, some interesting thoughts there from Jason. That is certainly a text I think that is worth considering that he brings up here in Romans 8. And once again, it brings in this F word, flesh. This is Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Uh, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So th this is definitely something to factor into our considerations here. What is the flesh? How do we get it? Uh, do, do we get rid of it when we, we become Christians? We're actually going to be talking about this more uh, next week. Matthew Elton writes in, he says, This topic has important implications for Christology. Scripture tells us that Jesus was made like his brothers in every way and tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. In Western tradition, it is thought that Jesus did not inherit any guilt or of original sin, nor did he inherit any propensity towards sin, the fallen nature of what Paul calls the flesh. 
that we inherit from Adam. Rather, as the second slash last Adam, his incarnation took the form of a man, but not the same flesh descended from Adam. Catholic theology further developed this thinking with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which explains how Jesus, although born of a woman descended from Adam, did not inherit original sin from Adam. Let me pause it there. Uh, That's an interesting point you bring up here, Matthew, and that is, I guess, the motivator for the doctrine of Immaculate Conception, whereby Mary herself was immaculately conceived, so that since she herself was not conceived in sin, so to speak, that she could give birth to Jesus and not pass on that original sin to Jesus, since she herself had some sort of miraculous conception. So that's really an interesting way to, to, to handle it, I guess. Although to my Protestant ear, it sounds awfully strange. Anyhow, uh, Matthew continues on, but how could any of this be true in light of Hebrews 2, 17 and 4, 15? Scripture tells us that Christ was made like his brothers in every way. Which one of Christ's brothers had no propensity toward sin? Which one of Christ's brothers did not have a nature inherited from Adam? James 1.14 tells us that the source of our temptation is internal, not external. One is tempted by one's own desire. Jesus was tempted, Matthew 4. Could a being with no propensity toward sin and no desire for sin possibly be tempted? Well, I would just say no to that. Uh, Matthew continues, who knows? But even if such a being could be theoretically tempted, surely the experience of such a temptation would be very different from the way we experience temptation. If Jesus did not completely share our nature, including our propensity towards sin, how could Hebrews 4.15 say that he was tempted in every way we are? Jerry remarked that he doesn't understand how an infant could be saved, or i.e. innocent, and then later become unsaved. I will counter that this is very simple and easy to understand. If a person has sinned, that person is guilty of sin. If a person has not sinned, that person is not guilty of sin. A child who has sinned is guilty of sin. A child who has not yet sinned is not guilty of sin. There need not be a magical age of accountability at which all children suddenly switch from saved, more accurate word would be innocent, to unsaved or guilty. It happens when a child sins. And then he goes on from there. I encourage you to check out these different comments. Uh, One last one, Ray Scott briefly just writes in. He says, I really respect Chandler's work, but so far I agree with Weirwell. This discussion is clarifying my basic beliefs, so has been quite valuable. Looking forward to the next episode. Uh, And that is really what we're trying to do here is raise the question. What does the Bible teach about this? Are we just blindly following tradition handed down from generation after generation? This is the quest of the restorationist, uh, where we are trying to get back to the original form of Christianity that the first century Christians practiced and then find ways to live that out authentically in the 21st century. And then the question before us today is, what about original sin? Is is this something we inherit or is this a later idea that crept into the church? And so I, I encourage you to check this out. We've got one more episode on this, and it is really an important issue, an important issue when discussing children that die very young when discussing the whole subject of abortion, uh, when discussing the whole question of handicapped people,
people and what they're responsible for and what they're not responsible for when discussing the whole question of people who have never heard of Christ and yet live morally upright lives based on the light that they have when discussing the question of to what degree Christians are freed from sin. Are, are we able to live without sin? Are we able to practice righteousness? Or are we just sinners saved by grace? Uh, you know, like the old bumper sticker slogan, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, uh, which seems to me like a quite a cop-out. But anyhow, these are all important questions that all hang on how we interpret these scriptures. So I encourage you to come back next week. Romans 5 is really at the center of all this, and I encourage you to read through it, especially the second half, verses 12 through 21, to have your own opinion before you hear these guys discussing it. Because in the end, we all stand before Christ, don't we? So that's it for this week. I've got some links in the show notes for this episode for follow-up with each of these guys as well as other episodes they've done. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at restitutio.org. Also, you can leave a comment there on today's episode. Just find episode 323, Original Send Debate 1, and you'll be able to leave a comment there, and we'll see you next week. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.